Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host alongside James Fox. We have a special guest joining us in a little bit, Burke Granger of 2080 Baseball. He covers the Major League Baseball Amateur Draft, which is Sunday, July 11th. The White Sox pick number 22. We've been covering the draft pretty hard. James, i got to give you credit mostly because of uh, your diligence and the way that you've been covering the draft over at Future Sox. A lot of the credit goes to you. You've been coordinating a lot of the writers outside of the website who have been uh, lovely to contribute for us as well as doing your own mock drafts. And I wanted to pick up right there. The last mock draft, you you know, we've been hearing a lot of Colson Montgomery. He's been the popular name. And we'll get into where he may land with Burke, of course, because there's some rumblings going on related to the top 10, in his case, the high school shortstop. But you went somebody different in your latest mock draft on Future Sox. Tell us who and why. So I went Gavin Williams, uh, right-handed pitcher, Eastern Carolina. And and look, some of it is just being a little bit contrarian. Um, like, from a lot of what I've heard is prep bat like everybody else has you know there's numerous names I think we've written about all of them Colson Montgomery West Cath out of Arizona Maxwell Muncy is a shortstop out of California and then Peyton Stovall is another infielder as well Um, so I really wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if they took like a high school infielder but look like we you know we talked about it a little bit with Josh Nelson if if a guy's not on the board like if Colson Montgomery is not on the board you know, like the scouting department can recommend a prep all they want to. Like that doesn't mean that Kenny and Rick are just going to like do that. Like I could see, you know, I think I said in there, like the college pitching light will be flashing like in the, in the draft room and then they'll just go that route because it's safer um, and it could help during their window. So I hope that I actually hope that's not the case. Like I, I projected Gavin Williams. I've heard um, since then um, that there's some medical questions on him and the White Sox, you know, have some questions. So that's like a little bit of breaking news. But um, so I don't know. Like, I don't know if it'll be Gavin Williams. I'm going to update it Sunday and change it. I just like I didn't want it to be the same every time. And we've done four of them. So, look, college pitcher is a possibility um, along with prep infielder. I'd be pretty surprised at anything else, though. I mean, I, I don't I don't think they go college hitter. Um, and I'd be really surprised if they took a prep pitcher in the first round just because, you know, they haven't done it in a, in a really long time, like since Chris Honnell. Yeah, we've had a few guests on talking about the amateur draft and, and describing the prep bats, really the shortstops in the first round is, is a popular uh, a commodity this year, which is exciting for a lot of scouts. But for the White Sox sake at 22, I mean, a lot can change across the first 21 picks and it's not like it, the, the major league baseball draft we talked about this a lot is a lot different than the nba the nfl drafts nhl drafts because a lot of it has to do with bonus pool slots and you know guys can manipulate that a little bit if they want to go to a certain team then you know they could use that as leverage and say look i'm going to sign for this but you know <laughs> we know you're not going to give me that so we're going to continue to fall into the team that we want to go it takes us what does that have to do with the White Sox at 22? Does that impact any of the names that may fall to the White Sox at 22? And does it change the draft strategy uh, in, in the White Sox front office? I think it can. I mean, even like the the last few years, you know, they've given their first round pick slot still and they've gone over later and they've used money from like round six through 10. Now they could do that. I mean, they could, their pick at 22 is like right just above 3 million. Like they could pay a guy 3 million there 
And then at pick 57, um, that slots 1.2. Like, they can come up with the other 800,000 to, like, get a guy to 2 million, which I think they will do. Like, I think that player at 57 will be significant and it'll be over slot. That's just how they've done things. The thing I don't know is if they're going to try to save a little bit, like, in round one. Like, do you go for a prep that might save you like $500,000 there in that first round. And then you have more money to play with kind of throughout. Cause it is like a smaller pool in general than they've had just because of where they're picking. So, um, but like you said, I mean, who knows? Like they, there might be like a top 10 player that they have that like falls to you at 22 and then they punt their strategy and just take that player. And if that happens, like they're definitely giving the full slot at that spot. So that could change what they do later so i guess it's just you know it just kind of depends on who's on the board it's easy to do these things even like in the top five and and even last year at 11 it was a little bit easier but at 22 um it's a little bit tough my guess is that they're gonna have they're gonna go in with a plan i think you know if it were up to the scouting department i think they would go prep prep with their first two picks i think they'd you know take up one of those prep infielders at 22 and then maybe double up and take another one at 57 if they can get the guy down there and then load up at college pitcher on college pitching throughout um but we'll you know we'll see what they ultimately do yeah it's uh it's fascinating to follow just because of how the slot value per pick in each round affects draft strategy and we'll we'll ask Burke Granger who's coming up in a little bit here on the Future Sox podcast before we get into a couple of major league news based on great feel-good stories this year, Jake Berger, Gavin Cheats, uh, as well as a couple of others. Any final rumblings that you're hearing that we need to pay attention to leading into the draft on Sunday as it relates to the White Sox? So I haven't decided what I'm going to do with like my final mock. I think other people's final ones are coming out tomorrow. It's weird because it's like on a Sunday and I don't know how many people are going to update, you know? Most people have still had Colson Montgomery to the White Sox. I think if he's on the board, I think that's a pretty safe bet. He might not be there. Somebody else might take him. That's when, you know, the questions kind of start. Like if Colson Montgomery isn't on the board, do they go with a college pitcher like a Will Bednar of Mississippi State who, you know, they like. They've seen Michael McGreevy a lot, who we wrote about on the website today from UC uh, Santa Barbara. Um, and then, you know, they're like, I had Gavin Williams, but apparently he has, you know, there's, there's some concerns with him as well. They would love Ty Madden, Ty Madden out of Texas. I think he's going to be long gone. So then at that point, you know, the, the preps like Wes Calf is interesting out of, you know, prep guy out of Arizona. He could be a little bit under the same thing with Peyton Stovall, who can really hit. That's a guy that Jim Callis really likes. Um, and then Maxwell Muncy, like we talked about. Muncy's a Boris guy. I think Muncy would want the full slot there. So, you know, I think it's going to be Colson Montgomery if Colson Montgomery's on the board. If Colson Montgomery's not on the board, college pitching or, you know, Wes Calf, who our profile's coming out on Friday for him. So if you haven't listened to any of the draft podcasts or you – you can catch up on any of them. Go to anchor.fm forward slash future socks. We talked to Joe Doyle of Prospects Live as well as Josh Nelson of Socks Machine. And, uh, you know, a lot of that information that we talked about that James is echoing here was discussed in those two podcasts. And it was a really informative conversation. And we'll have more for you with Burt Granger coming up from 2080 Baseball. All right, James, let's, uh, let's talk some Major League Baseball. We've got some news today as we record the podcast that Aloy Jimenez is assigned to Winston-Salem uh, beginning this weekend, as we record, as we said. He's returning 
earlier than expected, and I think that has a lot to do that we can look forward to with how the roster is going to shape up, the 26-man, how guys like Jake Berger, Gavin Sheets are going to be utilized. Uh, I mean, up until then, it's it's looking like they're going to stay for a little bit until guys get healthy. Adam Engel reinstated, Adam Eaton designated for assignment, which was encouraging to me to see that the White Sox wanted to utilize a bat like Sheets and Berger at least until reinforcements arrive a little bit later on in the season. Yeah, so I think you know I think they just recognize that there you know there's just not any justification for playing Adam Eaton right now, right? Because I think you know if Sheets is going to be up here, he needs to play, and Brian Goodwin's been better than Adam Eaton is, and with Engel back, like there's you know there's just no spots. It would have been easy to just like keep Eaton because you don't want to pay him to go away and you send down Jake Berger or whoever. But yeah, it was, it was very promising. It seems like those guys are going to get who I would imagine they'll play the majority of the Baltimore series. I think sheets has played pretty much every day, right? Berger's had some days off. I'm wondering if they, I mean, it's Baltimore. You got an eight game lead. I'm hoping we see Jake Berger at second base this weekend. I think that would be interesting because if he can play there a little bit, like a couple days a week, I mean, that might allow them to stay up here. You know, I am kind of, I'm expecting them to be fairly active at the deadline. I don't know what they're going to pull off, but, you know, this isn't going to be the team that they finished the year with. You know, they have some cushion, um, but I do think they're going to make a couple of deals. So, you know, it's good to see Jake Berger come up and do what he's done. I mean, it's a, the Berger story is fantastic. I mean, obviously, like we've talked about it, we, we ranked him, you know, pretty low at what, like the, preseason last year and then you know midseason and preseason this year he was back up there because we saw him in Schaumburg and we saw the shape that he was in but I mean he was you know looking like he was going to be kind of a lost uh lost pick there for a while and he's you know he's in the big leagues which is insane so and then Gavin Sheets I mean I talked to Gavin last September when he was left off the Schaumburg roster and he was you know he was pretty bummed but he very clearly went to work. You know, he's not a he's not a great outfielder, but he can play out there and he can hit and they don't have a bunch of left-handed power. So I think these guys have offered a boost and it's it's um it's good to see them in the majors. It's two more White Sox draft picks that are, you know, affecting a major league club. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy thing. I think I counted not a, not including the players from the Jose Quintana deal because I guess Quintana was signed after he spent time with a couple of other organizations before joining the White Sox, but 22 of the 40 players on the White Sox roster right now are a result of draft picks or acquired via a draft pick that was traded, in this case, Chris Sale, uh, or signed internationally and and completely developed within the system. It's an amazing thing that the organization is taking advantage of its own assets, and we're seeing it finally come to fruition this year as well as a little bit last year. James, one more thing before we get to Burke. The Yasmani Grandal injury, it's a torn tendon that he needs surgery uh, on his knee, and he's a catcher. Catchers squat a lot. From what I've heard, the timeline isn't really different, like surgery or not. I mean, I, I, the Sox were very vague in their press release saying that there's, like, no timeline. But, you know, I guess I don't want to, like, give away all the secrets on a podcast that anybody can listen to, but Robert Murray you know, got the story yesterday saying that he had the surgery and that he would be back in five weeks. What I will say is Robert Murray's source is very, very, very close to the situation. So 
you know, the, there are people that don't think that the timeline is going to be much different. Like it's four to six weeks. I don't think the Sox will say that because they haven't put a timeline on anything. But I mean, th- this isn't like a season ender, which I think is good news. Like I was preparing for him to be done um, and them having to go out and get a catcher. I don't really think that's necessary at this point. Like with an eighth game lead, you know, if you can get a vet um, to just like come in here and help, and you can just sign the player, that's fine. But I don't really think they need to go trade for somebody. I think Yaz will be back, um, you know, after Aloy and Robert. But, you know, September should be fun with, you know, their, yeah. whole, their whole collection of players. So that means Zach Collins, the primary catcher, and if they go out and get a veteran, you know, that's, that's a backup. Sebi Zavala getting called up. He'll be the backup. And Yerman Mercedes is working out in Charlotte as – catching pretty much every day. Uh, and, and really what I wanted to ask about the Grandall injury was how it affects the designated hitter spot, because with Aloy Jimenez coming back, how often do you want him in the outfield? I mean, you might have to just stick him out there as a result if you want to have Andrew Vaughn. And maybe Jake Berger is still on the roster at this point. We're, we're projecting way down the road here, but you got a Brayu too and Grandall. If he can't catch every day and you're trying to work in Zach Collins as well. I mean, that's something to keep in mind for the White Sox. And again, it's all about putting the best lineup out there. But at the same time too, if Aloy Jimenez is back, I'd rather have him at DH when he, uh, when he does return. Yeah. I mean, I've been pretty adamant about this. Like I, I think it's very easy and convenient for us to say to like, just take Aloy Jimenez's glove away. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about how, like, I, you know, I, I thought that he could just, like, be a bad outfielder. You you think that, that it's tough to, like, make a player do that. And, like, I understand where you're coming from. But, you know, the issue is, like, yeah, that's fine. He can DH, like, on the days where it's convenient to DH. But when two of your best pitchers refuse to throw to Yasmani Grandal, like, I'm not just going to play Zach Collins at catcher and DH Jimenez and have your best offensive per- player who is Yasmani Grandal like on the bench something's gonna have to give somewhere whether that means Lucas Giolito and Carlos Rodon like throw to Grandal and and Eloy's the DH or Eloy's gonna have to play left on those days when Collins yep. is the DH and I mean so yeah I mean there are issues I think look I think he's gonna DH quite a bit I think you know taking the glove away as much as possible is fine, but I mean, he's not going to be like a 162 game DH. That just that doesn't work in the American League, especially with a roster like the one they've built. Boy, we could uh, we could go on and on. A lot of news going on over the last couple of weeks. They're leading into the All Star break. The White Sox sitting comfortably in first place. The farm system doing pretty well across the board. I'd say there's a lot of fun stories. The ACL started up. The Arizona Complex League. We have Sean Williams out there covering the the Arizona White Sox. And then the Dominican Summer League uh, actually starts Monday, the, Monday. So that's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to cover that too with what we can get, at least stats-wise. All right, so let's get into the interview that we have set up with Burt Granger of 2080 Sports. Man, we're going right into draft weekend on Sunday. Let's see where the White Sox stand and hear what Burke has to say about the strategy and what to expect in the first round at pick number 22. It's a pleasure now to welcome in Burt Granger of 2080 Baseball as well as D1 Baseball. Check him out at d1baseball.com and 2080baseball. Burke is on Twitter at Burke Granger. That's Burke with an E. Burke, it's so good to talk to you again. Uh, we have been covering the draft over the last couple of weeks and you know, maybe extended to the entire month. And I'm sure your team has done more so than we have uh, in terms of covering the amateur draft. But it's unique because... You know, the, the information that we've been getting from a lot of our guests is 
you know, teams have been kind of settled in on like a, a core number of players in terms of their scouting process uh, as the draft has been pushed back this year for the first time. And we're seeing it only at 20 rounds compared to 40. You know, you had the five round draft last year mm-hmm. due to the pandemic. Uh, what about all of the variables this year has it impacted major league organizations in the way they're scouting for this draft in particular? So, yeah, first of all, thanks for, thanks for having me back on. I really, really appreciate and enjoy talking to you guys. So it it has been definitely an unusual draft year, maybe not as unusual as last year with the truncated spring and, you know, just the, the five round draft, but there was still a lot of uncertainties heading into this draft cycle. One being, you know, there was no Cape, there was no collegiate national team. So we didn't get to see a lot of these college players participate in premier wood bat leagues over last summer, which put people, put evaluators a little bit at a disadvantage heading into the fall, a lot of catching up to do while the high school like showcase circuit did take place last summer. That was unusual as well because they had to move certain events, both, uh, with geographical locations and with the timing due to COVID restrictions, you know, so Jupiter took place in Fort Myers. Um, the, uh, the Under Armour All-American game took place in Oklahoma City. Or Sorry, that was the, the perfect game. Uh, uh, All-American game took place in Oklahoma City instead of San Diego. So all these things got done, but, you know, certain players missed certain events. And the result is... I think, you know, at this point last year when the draft cycle started, a lot of these high school players that we're now seeing linked to teams in the first round weren't as highly regarded as they are now. And it it made these spring seasons all that much more important for them to go out and perform well. And, And that's why we're seeing, I think, so many high school position players in the first round of this draft or linked to teams in the first round. And I think high school position players is is going to be the strength of this draft when we look back at it in five years. And conversely, the weakness of the draft will be collegiate position players. We're, we're not seeing a lot of, of impact college bats, at least at the top of the draft. Henry Davis out of Louisville is one. Uh, Colton Kowser out of, of Sam Houston State is another. But I think then there, there is a little bit of a gap, and we'll see a lot of those college college hitters, in my opinion, going towards the end of the first round and then and then quite a few in in the second round. Yeah, I think yeah, well you're you're kind of mirroring with a lot of our guests previously have been talking about in terms of the strength of the draft, especially in the first round is the amount of position players. And I think it's interesting too that you note that not a lot of college bats are projected to go in the top however many picks in the first round this year, uh, which is of course outside of the norm over the last few seasons. And how I, I'm curious how that affects what the White Sox want to do at pick number 22 as, you know, the 21 picks prior to their their selection at 22. I assume that the White Sox are in on guys at the high school position player ranks. Or are you hearing anything different? Do you know if there's a specific player that the White Sox are really keying on and hoping that they're able to land? So I, I think we probably talked about this when I was on a year ago ahead of the, the 2020 draft, but you know, the White Sox, they've certainly had a reputation for going college player in the draft and particularly college position player in the first round. At least that was the MO under Nick Hostetler. Now, they they also had kind of a reputation of going like corner infield college bat, like a, a Berger, Sheets, uh, Collins, who, who's caught certainly more at this level than already than I thought he would. I thought he would be more of a first baseman and then Andrew Vaughn. 
Um, but but much of that was in that Nick Hosteller era. And how much influence was, was Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams in those those selections? I really don't know. And I I guess we'll find out under the Mike Shirley era because I don't I don't know if we fully had if we fully understand what a Mike Shirley draft is going to look like with 2020 being his first year, it was only a five round draft. And because the white Sox went so aggressive in the second round by, by getting a guy like Jared Kelly and going $1.5 million over slot and then needing to go bargain bin the rest of the way. I'm not sure if that's an accurate representation of how the white Sox are going to draft going forward. I think this year is going to be different for them regardless because they have the the 25th largest bonus pool. So there's only five teams spending less money than them in the first 10 rounds. So they're not going to have the means to go two times slot on, on any one particular player. So all that said, if they go high school player, I think it would be something in like the first round. And I'm seeing them linked to guys like Colson Montgomery, the, the, the high school out the high school uh, shortstop out of Indiana you know, a few other guys, Max Muncy, Wes Kath, th- those types of guys, I think, are are potentially in play for the White Sox. I haven't heard anything in particular. I think they're they're keeping things a little close to the vest. Now, one interesting note is that, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Mike Shirley lives in in Indiana, in like Central Indiana. So he it could have been happenstance that he's at a lot of Colson Montgomery games, and therefore gets linked to him. That's how a lot of t- a lot of players get links linked to teams, but when there's this much smoke and I'm seeing him linked to the White Sox in a number of drafts and and they were the first kind of major league team that I saw Colson Montgomery linked to, um, you would think that there's probably some fire around there. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it seems like, like Colson Montgomery is the favorite, you know, just like kind of from what we've heard and what everybody's saying, we'll see how the mock drafts look tomorrow. You know, the, the, you know, the big guys in the industry will have kind of, but it, but it just depends, right? Cause somebody could take also Montgomery before 22 and then they're pivoting from everything I've heard, you know, the scouting department, you know, they, they want to go prep. Like there's a whole list of prep guys that they like. I think at 22, you can make the argument that the best player on the board is probably a prep player, but look, they haven't taken a high school player in the first round since 2012, something me and Mike have talked about extensively. So you know, and if, how did if, that work if, out? Yeah, it not not well with Courtney Hawkins, <laughs> yeah. and you send him right to high A to fail. Um, yeah. You know, so if so if Rick Hahn looks at the window that they're in right now and decides to take a college pitcher that's going to be here a little bit quicker, I think everybody would understand that. I'm just not sure, you know, what the what the strategy is, right? Because if it's if I I think they want to go prep prep, I think they'll go over slot at 57 and kind of punt the rest of the second day. I think they're totally fine doing that. I think Mike Shirley led the charge on it two years ago with Matthew Thompson and with Andrew Dahlquist, and they did the same thing with Kelly. They, they have they have less right. money this year, so we'll see. And anything can happen at 22. But what do you think? Just overall, if that's the strategy, if they go prep, prep, and then kind of load up on college pitching, some guys are going to be a little bit cheaper because of the weird year. What do you think about that strategy if that's what they do? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it could work. I, I just, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to go as over slot as they did on Kelly, you know, and I do think there's some similarities in them taking Kelly in the second last year and taking Thompson and Delquist the year before. Now, Thompson and Delquist, in my, in my mind, weren't like, top 15 overall guys like Kelly was for me. And now, and I know Kelly has, has struggled a little bit out of the gate this year, 
but yeah, I, I think it's something that they certainly could do. Like a guy like Colson Montgomery at 22, I don't think is going to be significantly overslot. Um, you know, I haven't seen him in a year at PG national, but when I saw him, I, re- I really liked what I saw. I, I thought he was a smooth defender at shortstop. He's kind of atypical in terms of his bill for a shortstop. You know, he's tall and lengthy, uh, but I comped him to a guy like Connor Kaiser. If you're, if you're familiar with him, the old Vanderbilt shortstop, who was really good there. And I, I see, I see a lot of uh, references that he'll need, he'll grow out of second base and or grow out of shortstop and we'll need to slide over to third. And he's got enough arm, I think, to do that. Uh, but I like, I liked what he brought to the, at the plate as well. He's got a, like kind of a whippy left-handed swing. Uh, there's some pretty good juice, especially to the pull side. And then in some of those games that I saw at PG national where he's, you know, he's facing other premier high school competition from around the country. He, he had, I like the approach at the plate is he, he was able to spit on off speed stuff out of the zone. And then he, he took 90 the other way, flipped it for a, a line drive single. So, um, you know, the knock on him, and I'm sure you guys have talked about it is he's a little old for the class. He's, he's 19 and a half. Um, but, but he's a guy that, that I like quite a bit. Uh, but I, to your point, um, I, I I'm seeing him linked to other teams now in the top in, in the, in this draft. So if he gets picked ahead of, ahead of the white Sox, then I'm not exactly sure who their plan B would be amongst those high school infielders, those high school hitters. And if he's up there, I think there is kind of that bunch of um, college pitchers that could slide down and be available to the White Sox where when they were setting out their draft board weeks ago, they might not have anticipated some of those guys sliding to where I think they might slide. Yeah, I think I agree. I mean, you know, you might like Colson Montgomery's off the board. You might be deciding, hey, like, do we go with a Michael McGreevy or like, you know, Will Bednar here? And look, Bednar might go higher than that, too, after that performance. Right. Or do you go to your backup plan? And I think the backup plan is one of Wes Kath or Peyton Stovall. Maybe you save a little bit of money. You know, and then you, you know, and then you go to 57, hoping, hoping to float somebody. And obviously they don't have a ton of money, but I think they can go 2 million at pick 57 and, you know, use the money from eight, nine and 10 to do so. So if they were to do that, what are your thoughts on like West Cath and then Peyton Stovall? They've, they've been linked to Maxwell Muncie a little bit too, but as a Boris guy, I don't really think he's taking a discount in round one. Yeah, I would, I would think he would not. Um, I like Cath quite a bit, you know, the, he was at PG National as well. He's he's a little more filled out than than Montgomery and Muncie for that matter. He's he's a bat first shortstop. He he might need to move out the position uh, sooner rather than later. I, I think he's got good first step quickness, uh, but maybe not the speed um, that you that you're looking for in a shortstop. He's got plenty of arm for third base if he moves over there. So he was pretty solid over the summer, and then he really turned it on during the spring and started to rise up draft boards. He's, he's got a level swing plane, but he showed the ability to, to backspin the baseball. He uses the, uses the whole field, doesn't swing and miss a ton. Um, so the, the value for a guy like Kath is in the bat. He's not going to kill you on defense, uh, but I actually think he could be pretty good at a corner infield spot. Um, but you know, he, he's going to have growing pains if he starts out his career at shortstop, in my opinion. Now, now if he goes and follows through on his collegiate commitment to Arizona state, then 
he might very well prove that he can handle shortstop at the professional level and prove me wrong. Cause you know, admittedly my look at him was, was 12 months ago. And you know, it was a, it was a good look. I, I liked what I saw, but it was him taking infield outfield once. And then a couple games with, you know, eight plate appearances. So, so that's what I'm going off of. And, and at that point, his stock wasn't nearly what it is now. I, th- I thought he was potentially like a day two guy. And now he's, you know, getting first round, first round buzz. I mean, that right there, I mean, it's pretty good um, perspective to have in terms of uh, applying it to where the White Sox stand at 22, because, well, as Sox fans over the last few seasons, not used to seeing the Sox pick at 22. uh, And there's a lot of variables, you know, prior to their pick. And if it's not prep shortstop or prep player, I'm a big fan of pitching. Who are some of the arms that you've seen in person that could fall to around 22 where the White Sox stand? Anybody in particular that stood out to you uh, that the White Sox may be interested in and that could progress through the system relatively quickly? So I'm I'm a huge Sam Bachman fan, the right-handed pitcher out of the university, uh, Miami University here in Ohio. Um, you know, he, he's a he's a sturdily built guy. He's 6'1", 230. And so for me, and he... he I I've been there when he's throwing a hundred miles per hour. And, and when someone does that in your presence at, at the college game, that'll get you excited about a player. And he pairs it with, in my opinion, one of the best sliders in the draft. You know, I, I've, I've seen Kamar rocker. I like Kamar rocker slider better outside of that. I like, I like um, Sam Bachman slider. And then Will Bednar is probably right up there too. And then you, you combine that. So it, it's, it's a hundred mile per hour fastball. It's a slider that scouts have put a seven grade on. And then the changeup, he doesn't throw it often, but when he throws it, I've had a scout tell me it was a, it was a plus pitch, a sixty. So, and I and I've seen it, and I, I would agree with that. So I'm looking at a pitcher who can throw 100 miles per hour, has a 70 slider and a six changeup. For me, that's a top 10 pick in the draft. Now, with these other guys like Will Bednar moving his draft stock up, Gavin Williams moving his draft stock up, and a guy like Sam Bachman missed two weeks with shoulder shoulder discomfort. I, I think, in my opinion, I'm not I'm not a doctor. In my opinion, I think the coaches were just playing a little extra safe and understanding that this kid has a, a million dollar arm and they're not going to risk it by winning a two extra series in the MAC. So, for me, he's a top ten talent. But as these other guys slide up, someone's got to slide down, and he's a guy that I could see if you know if he makes it past eleven with the Nationals, I could see him making it all the way down to twenty two if these other guys are taking those spots, he, I, in my opinion, he would be an option. Uh, Will Bednar is a guy I mentioned, you know, he, he's probably with the draft being moved from June until July, I would say there is no player in this draft that has improved his draft stock directly as a result of that more than Will Bednar, because, you know, if the draft was previously during the super regional timeframe, if you recall, Will Bednar got, he got rocked by Notre Dame in the supers. And then he goes to Omaha and, you know, goes three and oh, and he looks like the best baseball player in the world. And he was good all season. So that's no knock on Will Bednar. He was highly regarded out of high school, but I think, you know, I think he's going to be probably picked in the middle of the first round directly as a result of, of kind of what he did in Omaha. And I'm always fascinated by stories like that. And I would love to hear what, what the scouting room is, uh, what the, the talk around the scouting room because around the draft room, because, these area scouts submitted a report on Will Bednar probably six weeks, six weeks ago and likely said he was a second round or maybe a comp round pick. And then you look at him in Omaha and he, he looks like a no doubt slam dunk first rounder. So 
I'm, I'm sure the, the scouting directors are then, you know, questioning the area scouts good naturedly about, Hey, well, thought you thought you said this guy was a second rounder and now he's dominating uh, the collegiate world, the college world series. So I think he's an option. I think McGreevy is an option that you guys mentioned earlier. And then Gavin Williams out of uh, East Carolina, another guy who improved his stock with a really good postseason would be, those would be guys in that area. So, you know, most years the, the college hitting crop rises to the top. This is not that year, obviously. I mean, I think there's what, there might be four, four locks to go in the first round and you know most of them are going to go ahead of the white Sox. you know they've leaned that way i really hope they don't go that way but one guy you know they were linked to from jonathan mayo i think is you know that both chicago teams had some level of interest in judd fabian um judd fabian scares me a lot just because of the strikeout rate the white Sox under nick hostetler um, you know they weren't really that interested in jaron kendall's profile and i think they're kind of similar so I guess what are what are your thoughts on Fabian and the year he is still young? So you know if he turns into George Springer, like I don't think anybody should be surprised, but I hope that happens in somebody else's farm system. So he does scare me. He scares me, but he scares me a little less than Jared Kendall. And and I was burned by Jared Kendall because I'm like, well, he's got all these other tools other than the hit tool. Like he, he's a he's an elite defensive center fielder. He's got power. He's got speed. Um, you know, maybe the hit will come along. Maybe the swing and miss will die down, and it and it hasn't obviously. Now Fabian is younger. Um, you know he he's a year younger than everyone every one of his peers. So he went to the Cape and dominated when he was just eighteen years old, like with wood bats, and that's something that Jaron Kendall didn't have in his in his profile. You know he Kendall performed adequately at the Cape, but there was still a lot of that swing and miss and. And Fabian swung and missed a little bit at the Cape too. Not, not like we saw in the first half of this season. Um, but I was happy to see him kind of rebound and, and have some, some really big series in S in conference play to kind of solidify his draft stock. And so he's not falling into the second and third round because going into this year, he was a guy that I liked quite a bit. So I think it would be a little bit of an atypical pick for the White Sox, but to your point, I, I don't think guys like, you know, McLean, Sal Freelich, Cal, Colton Kalzer, and, and certainly Henry Davis are going to be around at 22. Fabian could be the, the top college bat at that level. And, you know, if, if my job was not depending on it, I could sit here and tell you, yeah, I want to take a high upside college kid, but there's always that perceived safety and in, in a, a, sorry, a, a high upside high school kid, but there's that perceived safety in a, and a college player who's done it at the highest level, like the SEC, maybe Fabian doesn't have that level of safety that these other guys have because of the swing and miss issues in his past, but he's got all those other tools that if the bat doesn't come around, he still can be a productive major leaguer just with, you know, the defensive ability and the power off the bench. Um, obviously you're hoping for more than that in your first round pick, but it helps when your floor is a little bit higher than, you know, some of these high school guys, in my opinion, the hardest part about evaluation and scouting is projecting how these high school hitters are going to translate in pro ball. How's the bat going to translate when every one of the, the pitchers they're facing is, is a professional and, and they're not the, the third starter in a high school team? Well, Fabian has certainly silenced some of those, but you know the, the swing and miss is, is definitely a concern that they would need to, to get over. And I, I think someone will get over it and take them in the first round. I'm, I'm not, not sure if that'd be the White Sox or not. 
Burt Granger of D1Baseball.com and 2080Baseball.com. He covers the Major League Baseball amateur draft. Burke, really good stuff. Last one, before we let you go, just a general question about this year's draft class overall. It's it's very unique compared to the rest of the leagues because not always do the, the guys with the most talent go in order because of the slot value attached to each pick. Like mm-hmm. James alluded to earlier in the conversation, in first round, somebody goes over slot, maybe the next couple of picks, you go a little cheaper, which isn't necessarily the, the highest talent left on the board at that spot. How would you evaluate the 20 the round draft pool of players that are available for Major League Baseball, you know, at their disposal this year to select? Is there uh I know we talked about the strength in the first round. Just in general, is there a specific position, a crop of players that stand out the most to you and uh, just overall your feeling of the strength of this year's draft? I do think the strength when we look back is going to be the the high school shortstops, you know, Mayer, uh, Lawler, Watson, and even Brady House, if you're going to call him a shortstop. If, If those four guys are top 10 picks, then the success or failure of this draft class from a historical perspective is going to be based on how those guys perform and translate into professional ball. Um, My overall feel on this draft is I I think we're going to see some surprise picks. Like if you recall when the the Red Sox picked Nick York last year, um, that, that was one that people in the public space, internet writers didn't have pegged in the slightest. They had had more of a, a third or fourth round guy. I think we'll see a couple of those this year. And I think it's all going to be a contributing factor to COVID. <laughs> it's it's a ripple effect of sort of those things I talked about earlier where collegiate summer leagues um, got canceled, shifted around, high school showcases got shifted around, some guys set things out. So I think the the trickle of data, it all came in eventually. I think it just came in in ways that, that teams weren't fully expecting. They probably adapted, but I think where some team evaluates a guy is going to be drastically different than another team valuing a player in the draft. And I think that's, we're going to see that play out that there's going to be some shocking picks. So that would be my prediction for what we're going to see, uh, particularly on Sunday night on day one of the draft, there's going to be some head scratchers where folks here on, you know, internet guys like me are going to say, wow, I didn't see that coming. And, you know, that's because teams are playing this pretty close to the vest right now. And and I, I think their value of players is going to differ significantly from what, you know, me and other internet writers are, are, are shouting about in the public space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, only can scout so many players in, in such amount of time and those who are allowed to see players in instances, you know, some get a better look than others. So that makes total sense to me. Yep. Burke, really good stuff. Really enjoyed the time and uh, appreciate you stopping by once again. And we're looking forward to the draft on Sunday, July 11th. We're going to revisit this conversation and, and see where all these players land. So thanks again for your time. Oh, thanks again for having me. You guys are always fun to talk to. That's Burke Granger of 2080 Baseball and D1Baseball.com. My name is Mike Rankin for James Fox. We'll talk to you all next time here on the Future Sox podcast. Go to futuresox.com for everything and anchor.fm forward slash Future Sox for our entire library. The draft, July 11th. The White Sox pick at 22. Stay tuned.